Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast, coming to you this week from the South China Morning Post bureaus in Beijing, Brussels, and here in our newsroom in Causeway Bay on Hong Kong Island. My name is Jared Watt, and if you thought the death of the British Queen was not going to affect China or its geopolitics, think again, because a delegation of senior Chinese officials were refused permission by the House of Commons authorities to attend the Queen's lying in state. By the time I finish recording this podcast, there'll no doubt be a riposte from the weekly foreign ministry briefing in Beijing. But there are much bigger things happening than diplomatic outrage at not being invited to view the casket of a queen right now. It is one year since the signing of the AUKUS agreement, tying the Australian military to the strategic goals of the US and the UK to contain China, making Australia the only nation in the South Pacific to have nuclear-powered submarines. That is, if Australia can figure out who's going to make them. It is one week since North Korea declared itself a nuclear weapons state, with the legal power to preemptively launch its weapons. And Kim Jong-un declared his nation's road to strengthening its nuclear force would never end. And it's two days since Xi Jinping left China for the first time in two and a half years first to visit Kazakhstan and then to Uzbekistan for a meeting of the Shanghai Organization for Cooperation. We're going to take some time to get the full details of what has gone on and what decisions have been made in this meeting. What we do know is that Iran has been added to the eight member states, including China, Russia, India, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. But there's a few other nations attending, including Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Cambodia, just to name a few. But today we're going to zero in on that one meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. The last time they met, it was at the Beijing Winter Olympics and the Russian military was safely ensconced within Russia's borders. The world is a much different place now. My colleague Xi Jingtao is in Beijing and he's going to unpack some of the language used by Xi and Putin upon this latest face-to-face meeting, as well as taking us through some of the domestic politics and rising concerns about China's involvement with Russia. And you'll hear from Finbar Birmingham in Brussels. Ursula von der Leyen delivered her State of the Union address this week for the European Commission, and while she focused on Russia's war on Ukraine and the impact on Europe, she had a lot to say on matters pertaining to China as well. Let's get amongst it. It seems somewhat symbolic that the one story that's broken through the days-long non-stop coverage of a dead British monarch's body being put on display that's all for me has been this the week. meeting of Incidentally, Xi today being September 6th in Uzbekistan. Xi Jiangtao is our veteran Beijing diplomacy expert for the SEMP and has been closely following this meeting. Jiangtao, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Before we look at the statements and transcripts of what was reported about this meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, can I begin by asking you the same question I put to William Jiang last week, and that is, 
what's the optics of Xi Jinping leaving his country when, you know, as of today, there's tens of millions of his citizens in lockdown in 30 regions across mainland China. There's reports of starvation in Xinjiang. Sichuan is still cleaning up after an earthquake. We're reporting chaos in Beijing as new COVID controls come into place, leading up to the 20th Party Congress. How does she play this visit to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan as a show of strength? Yes, Jared, it's a, it's a very good question. Actually, I think uh, Chinese leaders getting back on all stage and in-person diplomacy has returned, finally. And hopefully the resumption of international travels would mark the first step in the country's long and arduous journey to return to normalcy. Uh, and you're definitely right, things have become, long become unbearable over the zero COVID strategy. And there have been mounting grievances about excessive controls, the staggering economic, social, and human costs of the seemingly endless lockdowns and PCR tests. Actually, has, it has raised a lot of valid questions about why the authorities have been so obsessed with this strategy when the whole world is opening up. We understand it's a political sensitive year and need for the authorities to tighten control ahead of the Communist Party's uh, Congress next month. But at what cost? Actually, wearing masks has largely been a hallmark of Xi's trip to Central Asia, the first time he left China since January 2020. He wore masks uh, when he was greeted at airports by leaders of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and no handshakes during the entire trip so far. Uh, but it seemed he relaxed a bit after he arrived in uh, Samarkand. A Russian official agency TASS reported that Putin had a chat with Xi Jinping after their bilateral and then trilateral meeting with Mongolia on Thursday. Xi and Putin, according to TASS, spoke at close distance without masks. Our hopes have been high that Xi's visit may signify changes in China's zero COVID policy after the party Congress, such as cross-border business engagement and people-to-people -people exchanges that are all vital to Chinese economy. Observers are saying that would help him domestically ahead of the leadership reshuffle that would see him secure a norm-breaking third leadership term. It would be a clear message to the Chinese public that China still has friends and is not isolated in the face of encirclement efforts by the, by the US and other Western nations. But uh, it is also true that uh, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen next. Yes, indeed, very hard to predict what's going to happen next. But can we look at what's just happened? Some of the language and statements that have come from this meeting. Can I pull out one particular quote of what Xi Jinping had to say to the Russian president? In the face of a changing world, changing times, and historic changes, China is willing to work with Russia to demonstrate the responsibilities of great powers and lead to instill stability and positive energy in a world of chaos. What is Xi Jinping signaling here? What did you make of this? Actually, the Chinese readout did not mention Ukraine at all, which is apparently a priority for the meeting. The Ukraine war, the pandemic, and the great power rivalry have certainly made the world increasingly unstable and chaotic. Apart from the quote you, you just mentioned, she also pledged that China will work with Russia to extend strong mutual support on issues concerning each other's core interests and deepen practical cooperation in trade, agriculture, 
and activity in other areas. He did not elaborate, but as we all know for Beijing, Taiwan is the mother of all core interests, while Ukraine obviously is Putin's top priority issue. Frankly, uh, the transcript from Kremlin tell us more about their encounter than the Chinese one. Putin described Xi as a comrade, or Xi called Putin, my dear old friend. Putin expressed appreciation for China's balanced position on Ukraine, backed Beijing's one-China policy, and condemned U.S. provocations over Taiwan. Interestingly, Putin also used an unusual world tandem to describe relations between Beijing and Moscow. He said, the foreign policy tandem of Moscow and Beijing plays a key role in ensuring global and regional stability. And in a thinly veiled swipe at Washington, he went on to attack attempts to create a unipolar world, which he said were an absolutely ugly configuration and absolutely unacceptable for, for the overwhelming majority of states on this planet. As he apparently shared Putin's disdain for the Western hegemony. It's really interesting you mentioned the difference between the Russian and the Chinese readouts of this meeting, Zheng Tao. I noticed our colleague Kinling Lo in Washington last night reported the US State Department found it striking that Vladimir Putin publicly admitted Xi Jinping had, quote, concerns about Russia's war on Ukraine. What do we know of these concerns and, and what does that mean? Actually, I agree. Uh... It is striking and very interesting to see Putin, who is so desperate for concrete help from China after setbacks in Ukraine, to put it in such a straightforward manner in front of all of the TV cameras. He's certainly aware that his opening statements will be televised throughout the world. So why and what could he gain from such a candid admission? I think it's part of Putin's tactics in order to seek Xi Jinping's understanding of his predicament and persuade the Chinese leader to do more to help Russia. But of course, he knows that's, the, that's almost a mission impossible because Beijing is also in a dilemma, balancing between its anti-US instinct to help Russia and the fear about triggering secondary Western sanctions. Another possible reason why Putin could be so candid and straightforward is he also knows that there's no way for Beijing to turn its back on Moscow at the height of China's rivalry with the US and the Western world. And it's not surprising at all that Beijing has doubts, grave concerns, reservations, and questions about Putin's war plan. From the very first day, the Russian leader launched his invasion of Ukraine. That partly explained why Beijing has offered only diplomatic support for Moscow, but so far declined to give the kind of assistance Moscow desperately needs to sustain the war. While China is bound to do more to help Russia because Moscow's failure in Ukraine is not in Beijing's interests, and it needs an anti-Western Russia to serve as a buffer, Beijing also frets about being dragged into the conflict. And also remember, when the war broke out nearly seven months ago, just days after Putin and Xi declared in Beijing a no-limits partnership, everyone was perplexed about whether or not Beijing was informed of the invasion plan. We still don't have a definite answer to that question. China has clearly been caught off guard, and that says a lot about the actual state of the trust and strategic communication between Beijing and Moscow. 
Interestingly, in his opening remarks yesterday in his meeting with Putin, Xi Jinping praised effective strategic communication between the countries since the beginning of this year. While we understand it's Beijing's efforts to quell doubts and questions about China's pivot to Russia, especially after Moscow's humiliating defeat in Ukraine over the past week, it has actually raised more questions than answers about whether Beijing knowingly walked into Putin's trap, which doesn't look good for the leadership in Beijing at all, that could effectively nail China as Putin's enabler. Zheng Xiao, it's interesting that for a long time, Beijing and many China watchers have utterly rejected any similarities between Russia's war on Ukraine and Beijing's stated intentions of its goals to reunify with Taiwan by force if necessary. But here we had Vladimir Putin directly commenting on US actions around Taiwan. Is that a significant moment? I think so. Uh, and some say it's a quick pro quo. It makes some good sense, actually. After all, they've repeatedly pledged to back each other in defending their so-called core interests. It also remind, reminds us of the limitation of such a no-limits partnership. Both sides are usually quiet and refrain from offering support for each other on territorial disputes, such as the South China Sea and Crimea. In other words, they still have red lines. China and Russia still have red lines and are worried about incursions into their respective spheres of influence, despite all the rhetoric about their trust and mutual respect for core interests. Interestingly, Zhang Tao, while Xi Jinping was meeting with Vladimir Putin, his number three leader, Li Jianshu, was in Moscow, and it's his remarks about China's response to Russia's war in Ukraine that appeared to give a different interpretation of Beijing's stance on that war. Here's what he had to say. Just as in the Ukraine situation, the US and NATO forced directly to Russia's doorway, involving Russia's national security and people's lives and security, in such a case, Russia took the action that should be taken. China comprehends it and supports coordinately in different aspects. I think it can be said that Russia has been cornered in such a case. Russia just defends the national core interests, then takes a counterattack. What did you make of that? What are people saying about Li Jianshu's statements in Beijing? It's indeed remarkable, and uh, many people have different interpretations. It's worth noting that a lot is happening when Xi is traveling. Uh, the Taiwan Policy Act, the wrangling in Geneva over the U United Nations Rights Council report on Xinjiang, Ukraine's counterattacks, chaos in China cities over prolonged zero COVID controls. So it's interesting to ask why Lee made the remarks, which some said amounted to the clearest and the strongest endorsement of uh, Putin's war. So why has Beijing stepped up its verbal support for Moscow now, coinciding with the Russian army's humiliating defeat in Ukraine? It should also be noted that instead of giving uh, Beijing's endorsement during Li Danshu's meeting with Putin, Li actually offered China support when he later met Russian lawmakers in Moscow. It's also interesting that Moscow released video clips of Li's statement while Beijing tried to play down his remarks. Many Chinese experts I talked to, they felt uncomfortable about Li's remarks. Some of them said uh, Li's remarks do not necessarily represent uh, Xi Jinping's stance. 
Well, I don't think that's true because uh, she's uh, China's number three leader and he's a close ally of Xi Jinping. I think uh, a reasonable explanation is that uh, they have different roles to play in, in China's diplomacy. And according to Russian specialist Mark Katz, a professor of government and politics at George Mason University in the U.S., he said Xi Jinping's remarks on Ukraine obviously is more important than Li Zhanshu's. And this may have been more a case of the Chinese government saying something to soothe Russian officials, even though the reality is that Beijing is not doing too, too much to help Moscow. And on the other hand, Li Zhanshu's statement may also have been made in the context of Russian battlefield losses as a warning that China could do more to help Russia if Western-backed Ukrainian forces go too far. And Katz also said that Moscow has a strong interest in overstating the meaning of Li Zhanshu's statement. Well, it's interesting to see there's still a bit of leeway, push-pull about what the overall agenda is in this uh, friendship that has no limits, Zhang Tao. Can I ask you to cast forward from this meeting? You know, does this meeting of Xi and Putin mark an important turning point or or important step towards a new level of coordination between China and Russia, do you think? I think it's, uh, it remains to be seen because uh, Xi has uh, kept regular contacts with Putin. And according to experts I talked to, some experts I talked to, they said the, the summit is not as important as his trip to Central Asia itself, because Central Asia, apparently, is of more strategic importance for China at the moment, because Central Asia is apparently of more strategic significance for China when the US and Russia are distracted. Well, obviously, Putin has great incentives to seek Beijing's intervention on Ukraine after recent setbacks. China will no doubt grow even more cautious and by no means want to get involved directly or indirectly in this protracted conflict. As you say, Russia and the US may well be distracted from Central Asia. We will have a lot more coverage and analysis of what's come from the Shanghai Cooperation Group meeting in Uzbekistan. As always, Xi Jinping, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for your time and thank you for your analysis. Muchly appreciated. My pleasure. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Finbar Birmingham is our Brussels-based correspondent, and I seem to recall him telling us just a couple of weeks ago that this time of year is very quiet in the political and bureaucratic heart of the European Union. But his recently published stories on SEMP.com seem to indicate otherwise. Finbar, hello. Hi, Jared. Yes, the holiday is over. Uh, I never <laughs> took my holiday anyway in, in August, but everybody's back, everybody's working, and there's a lot on the agenda. So it's been a busy couple of weeks after a quiet August. And of course, you've had the significant moment of the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen making her State of the Union speech late this week with Ukraine's First Lady Elena Zelensky in the audience and unsurprisingly, Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine as the dominant topic. What did you get from this speech and was there much reference to this side of the world? So this is her her way of sort of teeing up 
the agenda for the year ahead, both in terms of legislation and, and policy. And so obviously, as you said, it was dominated by Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was dominated by the big uh, household issues here across Europe, inflation, energy crisis. Um, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a cluster crisis at the moment here with the cost of living and everything. So, of course, those take precedent. But there were a number of things that directly and indirectly uh, fed into EU-China relations uh, and just China generally. Um, on the industrial front, President von der Leyen talked a lot about um, the need to uh, diversify uh, and to basically become in some way less dependent on China for um, rare, rare earth minerals, lithium, these critical minerals that will power what the European Union hopes to be a next wave of industry, you know, the, the industries of the future, the climate projects that they're doing, all of these ambitious lofty targets very much are dependent on China, uh, which controls 90% of a lot of the world's rare earths and something like 60% of lithium that powers the batteries for ev everything ranging from advanced solar to uh, electric vehicles. Um, you know, so this is something that she announced yesterday. There will be an act, a critical minerals act, um, which will go about trying to find projects in the supply chain and to diversify European supply away from, from China. I mean, this is all very well and good. It's a lot of talk. I don't really see any concrete action in there. And it's nothing new. We've heard this before, both from a European point of view and also at a G7 level and also at a European slash American level in the Trade and Technology Council, they've been talking since the start of COVID about the need to be less dependent on China. I think that was a bit of a, a wake-up call, but they haven't really done much since they've wakened up. There's been a lot of talk. There's a lot of these initiatives, a lot of initiatives to, to become less dependent on this, that, and everything to rival China across the board, across the world. But you don't really see that see that much follow-through on these things. So the I don't want to get too carried away with that. I want to just say this is another initiative that's been announced by the European Union to try and sort of wrest back some autonomy for these minerals and, and so on. But we'll, we'll see how that goes. I mean, one way in which they could do that would be to conclude trade agreements with the likes of Chile, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, which have been stalled for, for ages now. You know, not, China processes the vast majority of these minerals, but they're not all found in China. You know, China takes a lot of them from other parts of the world and processes them there. So this is potentially a way that they could wean themselves off of China, but it seems a terribly long-term plan. On another note, um, direct reference to China also in terms of its perceived malign influence in European uh, academia. Um, von der Leyen raised the example of the uh, the Free University of Amsterdam, which earlier this year was forced to cut off its funding from a, from a, a Chinese university and say that it would repay previous funding, having been found to publish materials which were essentially echoing the Chinese government line on, on Xinjiang, on forced labour and on things like that. You know, it was a highly embarrassing episode for what is the Netherlands' fourth largest university. And this was used as Ursula von der Leyen called these sorts of things a Trojan horse for autocrats in in Europe. She said, again, they would propose an act to try and combat this sort of stuff. Reading between the lines, it seems as though they may try to tighten up the funding for European academic institutes that comes from the likes of China. But there's nothing concrete on that yet. But that was, again, another mention of China directly in her speech. Indirectly, there were all sorts of references to this 
war or battle between autocrats and democrats. Um, this is something which was sort of, she went on talking about Russia and sort of launched into a broader conversation about how this this rivalry between democrats and autocrats and so on. We hear, hear a lot about this and it actually rubs a lot of people in Europe up the wrong way as well. Because it's kind of a straw man argument, because uh, if you really take it any further, the next logical step, then it means you have to stop cooperating with Saudi Arabia. You have to stop cooperating with most of the the Gulf. Um, And, you know, Europe is in the midst of an energy crisis and is trying to import more energy from from Qatar, more energy from from all over the world. So a lot of people get frustrated with this rhetoric because it's absolutely shallow. Yes, the European Union is trying to decouple itself from Russian energy. Yes, there is more suspicion towards, for example, China because of you know we see in Uzbekistan today Putin and Xi will have a meeting, but there you know there's a bit more suspicion towards China. But I think a lot of people grow weary of this rhetoric about Democrats versus autocrats whenever it doesn't really go much further than than the rhetoric. Very interesting to note that the senior leaders of Qatar and Saudi Arabia are also in Uzbekistan as part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting called by Xi Jinping. But there was another topic she raised that veers closely to what you've been following closely for the last few years. And this is the EU's proposal to ban forced labor. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, this is something that von der Leyen announced last year during her State of the Union speech in 2021, and which officials have spent the last year fighting over and eventually preparing a proposal uh, which um, was presented yesterday. It was it was revealed, it was released yesterday, it was published yesterday. Von der Leyen didn't actually mention it. It was very unusual that she would put such pressure on her teams, the DG Trade and the DG Grow, that's the Department for Trade and the Department for the Internal Market to get this thing ready and then in time for her speech and not mention it. It was quite, quite bizarre. But this is a, a ban which has been proposed. Let's just sort of contextualize that. It's nowhere near being ready. This is the very first draft which has been proposed by the European Commission, which is the technocratic policy drafting arm of the European Union. It now has to go to the European Parliament, who will internally negotiate their own version, as will the European Council, which is the representatives from the 27 member states here. So, for example, each of the countries have umpteen diplomats and officials that sit in various different committees in the European Council. And so they will, each of those arms of the EU will come up with their own documents. That could be God knows how long by the time they all internally agree. And then the three of those, the Commission, the Council and the Parliament, have to get together and come and agree on, on a document. So, and then after they do that, actually, it takes another two years to build the systems required to to implement this forced labour ban, according to the text. So, just to sort of hasten to mention that this is not something that's going to happen overnight. Now, it is interesting, nonetheless. This is something that the European Parliament had been calling for for a long time, largely linked because of the allegations of forced labour, widespread coercive labour in in Xinjiang, the western Chinese province. Now, the EU tackled this in a very Brussels, a very European Union way. Everything that they do, they want it to be within the rules of the world trading system. They want it to be a law which can be exported. Essentially, this is a law that other countries could say, okay, that might work for us because it's WTO compatible, maybe we can try it too. So basically, this law, it doesn't name any third country. It's non-discriminatory. It's not an import ban. It also applies to goods made in the European Union. So any good that is found anywhere in the world 
to have been made using forced labour will be banned from sale in the European Union. There's a lot more to it than that in terms of the processes and the details, but I, I don't want to bore you with technicalities. You can read our story. We had a, we we were aware of this last week and I wrote a big story over the weekend. Um, but it's very different approach to the United States, which is outright effectively banned goods made in Xinjiang on the presumption that they're all tainted with forced labour. Now, that would be against WTO rules. There's some grandfathering clauses within US domestic law, which predate the GATT and the WTO, which means that it doesn't apply to, to the United States, but they don't care anyway. The US doesn't really care too much about whether things are WTO compliant. They are very fond of unilateral trade tools, and the European Union wants to stay away from that sort of thing. So there's a big difference, nor does the European Union really want to to rub China too much up the wrong way. They don't want to just pitch this as being about China. Although if you speak to officials on, on background, as I've been doing, they would say, well, it was, of course, inspired by it and a wish to eradicate forced labor around the world. But with all the stories that are going on in Xinjiang, this is a risk-based system. So products from there will be considered higher risk. So they will be investigated and so on. And so it's more likely to flag up products from Xinjiang than it is from Wellington, New Zealand, for example. So this is something that could cause a bit of trouble further down the line, you know, if, if European countries keep finding these goods coming into their supply chains, solar panels, which, you know, we, we've discussed before, are very heavily concentrated in Xinjiang. There's allegations of of widespread forced labour in the polysilicon supply chain, a vital component. Of course, China denies all these allegations, but you know, you can see how this could, could grow arms and legs. One point to add on this, somebody described this the other day as a policy paradox. The EU is faced with, at the same time, trying to expand massively its use of renewable energy. It's faced at this point of trying to decouple itself totally from Russian energy. And it's also faced with a moment in which it's trying to ban all goods made using forced labour. So how do you go about moving to the next stage of renewable energy banning Russian energy and then not being able to use Chinese solar panels because there's potentially the presence of forced labour in the supply chain. This is something that's going to be a real headache going forward. I mean, how do you actually do that in practice? It's going to be, I had coffee with a, uh, somebody from the solar industry earlier that, that this week, and they're really scratching their heads about this. It's going to be a quandary, really. It's going to be a massive, massive headache to try and do th these things all at the same time. The answer probably is that you can't do them all at the same time, that you have to prioritise which of these is, is, is most important to you and and so on. And the ultimate answer is that they would like to have an indigenous European supply chain for, for solar, right? Then you have to sort of break down your own internal ideological opposition to subsidies and, and, and so on. So it's, it's look, it's, it's very complex, but it, it's something we're going to be covering going forward. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it again. When you talk about priorities, Finbar, I think the immediate one is Vladimir Putin threatening to shut the gas off to Europe as winter approaches. Sounds like there's a lot more to come on that. What's on your radar coming up? What are you watching for at the moment? We're going to have a vote today in the European Parliament about Taiwan. And I think the Taiwan issue is going to be the big China-related topic going forward. The European Union is still in this little bit of an awkward space in which it doesn't really want to say too much. There's been some stories this week about behind the scenes manoeuvring. The European Political reported that the European Union spy chief was supposed to visit Taiwan, but the Chinese found out about it, so he cancelled it. Cancelled it? That's a bit awkward for a spy chief. 
to find out that Chinese have found out his travel plan, surely. Well, there's a massive problem with this in the European Union. Diplomats and ambassadors are supposed to be meeting to talk about sensitive issues, but it keeps getting leaked, not just to the press, but to also to, to rival governments. The European Parliament's Vice President, Nicola Beer, visited Taiwan in August. Diplomats from the European Union's External Action Agency, which is the Foreign Service, basically, were summoned by Chinese officials to get a dressing down before she went there. They didn't even know she was going. The Chinese government knew before the European Union knew. So this is a huge problem and basically means that a lot of these meetings about Taiwan and related to China are done on a very confidential basis. There's a no phones rule where diplomats in the room are not allowed to be recording. Um, everything's on pen and paper and they try and just do it by a vote, vote of, of, of voice. You know, so it's like I or nay. Uh, so it's an awkward position uh, at a time when the European Union is already in a wee bit of an awkward position because it's under pressure from the United States to take a harder line. It doesn't really want to do that. It's got a big war going on on its doorstep. It has other priorities. Taiwan wants it to start negotiations over bilateral investment agreement. It's not going to do that. You know, I'll be reporting about that this week anyway. We can talk about it again soon. Sounds like a lot on your plate, Finbar Birmingham. Thank you very much for your time. We'll follow you on Twitter and, of course, look for your stories and analysis on scp.com. Thank you very much. Cheers, Charles. marks the day in 1945 when the occupation of Hong Kong by the Japanese army came to an end. It's the day in 1955 when a Soviet Zulu-class submarine became the first to launch a ballistic missile. And it's the birthday for Fan Bingbing. If you can find the through line for those three events, please get in touch with me on Twitter. Otherwise, keep in touch with the SCMP Political Economy team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. Patch yourself into our 24-hour newsroom on Twitter at SCMP News. And of course, all the analysis of the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation announcements will be up this weekend on scmp.com. Stay safe, and as we say in Hong Kong, stay positive, but test negative. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.